This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by the 2018 Launchpad Pilots Competition. Now in the fifth year, the Launchpad competitions have helped 254 writers get signed, 81 projects get set up, 48 writers get stuffed, and led to four bidding wars. When you enter your pilot script this year, you'll save $15 off your entry just by using the code PAPERTEAM, all caps, all one word, at the checkout, as a special thank you to our listeners. For more information on the tracking board's current competitions and exclusive partners, visit tblaunchpad.com. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we are taking a look at four iconic TV characters as well as what makes them memorable. And those characters are David Palmer from 24, Lindsay from You're the Worst, Michael from The Good Place, and Scorpius from Farscape. Quite the combination of characters there. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Find them all together in a bar somewhere. Insert joke. <laughs> <laughs> Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Hope you had a good holiday, Alex. I did. How about yourself? Good, I good. heard that you went to Australia. I did. I went all the way back there. It had been over three years. So I went back, saw my family, saw all my friends. It was a nice little refresh. I'd like to get back a little more often than every three years from now on. Also, you, now you're a little bit more legal than you were before. Or uh, yeah, <laughs> I, got, I, got, I got another visa put in my passport. So I'm here. You're stuck with me for another at least two years. So we'll see. <laughs> sadly, sadly. Also, we wanted to say that we have received several emails and voicemails from all of you. So thank you so much for actually sending those in. We appreciate it. And we're going to address those in our next episodes. For this episode, we've got a lot of content we want to get through about these characters. So we will definitely take a look at those in our following weeks. And just a note about our tracking board sponsorship slash pilot competition. Uh, we've been getting a couple of reports that the paper team code hasn't been working. However, we contacted tracking board and that issue has now been fixed. Uh, so if you want to use the code to get $15 off your entry, you can use it now. It's paper team, all caps, all one word. But if you're still getting errors, you can send an email to tracking board at service at tracking dashboard.com. And now time to dig into some characters. So first off, we just want to say massive spoiler alert for all of these shows. If you have not seen and you plan to watch all of uh, The Good Place, You're the Worst, 24, Farscape, then you should be aware that we are going to be spoiling some major plot points and character arcs going on in here. So with that said, let us proceed. So this is going to be a little bit like when we did our TV pilots case study, but we're going to be looking at characters. And we wanted to pick characters that we hadn't discussed as much in previous episodes as there are ones that you bring up a lot. And these are maybe a little more niche. Let's go over some of the characters we selected. And on my end, I went with a hero and a, a villain. First off is David Palmer, the villain. Wait, no, he's the hero. Uh, <laughs> played by Dennis Haysbert from the Fox TV show 24. And he's essentially the co-lead alongside Jack Bauer in the first three seasons of the show. And he serves as a presidential candidate in the first season before being president in the second and third seasons. And my second pick for the character case study this time around is Scorpius from the science fiction TV show Farscape. And Scorpius is a half Scaran, half Sebastian alien hybrid. I'll get more into what that means later on this episode. But his character pursues the protagonist, John Crichton, throughout the entire series to literally dig into his brain and uncover the secrets he knows. So for me, I went with two kind of supporting comedic characters in a couple of my favorite comedies that are currently on the air. One of them is Michael, played by Ted Danson, who's the architect in The Good Place, arguably at least an antagonist, if not a villain in the truest sense. And then Lindsay from You're the Worst, who is the best friend of the female lead in You're the Worst, Gretchen. 
Now, it should be noted that even though those are all great characters, otherwise we would not have picked them, and none are the actual number one on their call sheets. Uh, in other words, they're not the main lead of their respective shows. It's interesting. I think sometimes these supporting characters or ancillary characters can be more memorable than the leads. I kind of refer back to that Brad Pitt problem. There was an article written about him a while ago that says that he's such a great character actor whenever he is a supporting role in any movie, but he's always such a wooden leading man, and the movies that he is the lead in don't really succeed. So, you know, I just think that... Sometimes the most interesting and unique characters are those supporting characters because maybe they don't have the burden of having to drive the story forward with their actions. And they also don't need to be a very like blank slate a la Neo from the Matrix to allow audiences to project onto them. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, that's the, the difference between a character that can be a little bit more passive and a bit more contemplative than the protagonist, as you point out, that protagonist is often more active and kind of a cipher for the audience. And on the flip side, secondary characters can be that reflection of what the lead characters are or uh, sort of what the villain and the hero are in stories. And maybe they can act as the angel or devil on their shoulder, uh, which I feel is the case for multiple of these characters. Yeah, they kind of get to have more fun and show the extremes of the decisions and choices that the lead character could be making. Maybe that's why some of the cases, the secondary characters overshadow the leads. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, All right, well, let's get into it. <laughs> So in this section, we're just going to talk about why we actually chose these characters. So Alex, why did you choose David Palmer from 24? Well, the main reason why I picked Palmer is pretty simple, and that is he's kind of an idealistic character that is still a complex character. He's a person who has positivity and ideals while still maintaining that edge with flaws and still remains kind of a compelling character. Uh, also, we did talk about ethnicity and diversity in our original character 101 episode, and this is definitely something I wanted to showcase in the, this case study as well. David David Palmer is the first African-American president on primetime TV, which means in part he needed to be ethical and good to uh, get that image across. And the question of diversity needed to be noted here specifically because it does not really impact the narrative of the show itself. However, it does impact the historical importance of his character. Uh, now, for three seasons, Americans watched as a capable person ran these United States, who also just happened to be African-American. And the New York Times during the second season noted that, quote, David Palmer is the first black president of the United States, but no one seems to notice. The matter-of-fact way 24 has placed him in the White House just hints at how this clever suspense series toys with and enhances reality, end quote. Kiefer Sullivan himself spoke about one of the reasons he signed on to 24, and he said, quote, one of the things I thought powerful in reading the pilot script was that we have an African-American president. Theater, film, TV are really that powerful. And if you show African-American people in this kind of position of political power, then people will believe that it is possible. And I thought this was a very positive statement. Now, 24, it should be noted, never made Palmer's ethnicity a plot line in of itself. And in fact, they subverted that idea. Palmer was not threatened in the first season because of his skin color. He was threatened because, spoiler alert again, Victor Drazen wanted revenge on both him and Jack Bauer for something they did in Kosovo two years before. And that is one of the many reasons why David Palmer is such a great TV character is because the whole diversity issue is almost a non-event uh, with his character. And really, the execution of David Palmer exists in a world where people are, quote, judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of the character. 
Absolutely. And if you think about it, I think the first season of 24 came out around 2001. And that was seven years before Obama's presidency. So it really kind of paved the way maybe in the public consciousness for a figure like that. And like weirdly mimicked his kind of like, you know, he was a senator from, you know, a state that was pretty close to over on the East Coast. And then he, he swung all these swing states and he blazed his way through the primaries to be president, just mm-hmm. like David Palmer did. Yeah, and it probably uh, predicted the next president we have right now. <laughs> Unfortunately. Uh, but I'll get more into that later. Now, moving on to Scorpius. Uh, the reason why I picked Scorpius is simply because he's kind of the polar opposite of Palmer. Scorpius is one of the greatest villains in TV history. He is legitimately terrifying at times. And in fact, he actually compromises the protagonist in permanent ways. Uh, but he is also a three-dimensional character and three-dimensional enough that you do start to empathize with him the longer you go on the show. In fact, Scorpius is far more complex than the simple label of bad guy that you see tacked onto every antagonist here and there. Uh, he has this mix of anger and humanity that actually endears him to the audience. And the truth is, even his mere presence overshadows any other antagonist in Farscape's four seasons. And Farscape has had numerous antagonists, but the only one you really remember after all these years is Scorpius. And there's a lot more to say about him, but I'll let Nick present his own two characters. Okay. I, my decision process was more or less who I thought were some of the more memorable or unconventional characters that stuck out to me in recent years that kind of defy the typical archetypes and stereotypes that we see in a lot of TV sitcoms. So Lindsay Gillian from You're the Worst starts out as this kind of like chubby best friend trope from any given rom-com feature, merged with maybe the female equivalent of the eternal like dumb man-child a la Seth Rogen characters in movies. And then she kind of wallows in that for like a season or two, but then it gets really interesting and she starts to undergo a, honestly a truly transformational journey as a character into a productive and mature adult in seasons three and four, especially something that we rarely see in sitcom characters much less the supporting characters in a sitcom. Yeah, doesn't she have actually a better arc or a more complex arc than the two leads? In, yeah, uh, the especially in season four, we really see that flip around with the, the supports and the leads in an interesting way, which I'll discuss later. But uh, And so the other character I chose, Michael, who I don't think has a last name uh, in, in The Good Place, is another fascinating example of character change or maybe a character pivot in a sitcom. I'd say that he's still the same person fundamentally from where he was to where he is now, but suddenly our understanding of his POV and his motivations have been fundamentally altered when this big plot reversal kicks in around the end of season one, which we'll discuss in a little bit. All right, let's talk about how these four characters are introduced in their respective shows, uh, both literally on the page and overall in their pilot episode. So here is the character intro for Lindsay Gillian as it's written in the You're the Worst pilot script. So Lindsay Gillian, 28, drives a brand new Lexus. Lindsay is slightly overweight, but her clothes and hair are carefully put together and scream, I'm trying to be an adult lady now. Gretchen sits in the passenger seat, changing into clothes Lindsay has bought her. Lindsay is not happy. Rereading the pilot script, a lot of what makes Lindsay Lindsay isn't really on the page here in the pilot, aside from that little quote of I'm trying to be an adult lady now, which is 100% Lindsay and something that her character would probably say as dialogue if given the chance, uh, and probably has. A lot of Lindsay's immaturity and kind of babyishness doesn't really reveal itself until later episodes, as the pilot is pretty tightly focused on Jimmy and Gretchen's blossoming dysfunctional relationship and the aftermath of Becca's wedding to Vernon. And Lindsay is really only in one brief scene driving Gretchen somewhere, and we get to understand that she's Becca's sister, that she's Gretchen's best friend, she's kind of curvy, promiscuous, and she's trying to be more of an adult. 
And then later on in the the following episodes, they kind of, I guess, in a way, flanderize her into this very clueless, naive, baby-like character who barely knows how to function for a while until her character really does begin that change in earnest. Yeah, I do feel it's true for most of the characters that we're talking about today where they're not that present in that first episode. They're kind of in some, uh, maybe one or two scenes and you kind of get who they are as a character in broad strokes, but you don't really dig that deep into who they are. They don't hit their stride until a few episodes into the season. Exactly. And I did want to bring uh, on that subject, David Palmer, who is actually introduced before we meet him. And we've mentioned before this idea of sort of building up the mystique of a character before we meet him or her. And this is exactly how the pilot script of 20 presents David Palmer, and there's a few beats before we we see him in person where they describe, quote, the commercial is replaced by CNN report on today's California presidential primary. Prominently featured is African-American candidate David Palmer, or there's a billboard with a picture of David Palmer, Palmer for president, tilt down to Jack's car, Jack stares into the larger-than-life face of Palmer, and that is before we see Palmer physically. In fact, there's a CTU briefing where they talk about the threat to his life which will be the main drive of the season. And finally, 20 pages in, that is when we get to meet his entourage before we meet the actual man. And the scene goes, quote, start on microwave LED, which reads 1218, widen to reveal Sherry Palmer, an elegant African-American woman, mid-40s, who crosses a couple of Secret Service agents and enters the kitchenette, where a maid puts a pot of coffee and some cups on a tray. Sherry carries the tray onto a large balcony that overlooks the city. David Palmer sits with Patty Snyder, a young Yaley speechwriter, and several other aides. Palmer reads some printed material. The finished, produced pilot has actually much less preamble to his intro than all the billboard and uh, CNN report I just described. The few scenes we have about him nonetheless set him up as a presidential candidate before we physically meet him. And I thought that was an interesting, clever idea, especially since he's not the main lead character. Unlike the bad examples we've quoted in the past of characters talking about other characters who happen to be the lead character we should be meeting. Uh, that right. Is we've here. talked about that idea that like the first thing you see on screen, you're like uh, baby chickens or geese or whatever, and you imprint on it. You're like, oh, that's my mother. Like, that's the protagonist. Like, you don't want to put David Palmer as the first thing on on the screen because we're going to think, oh, this is a show about David Palmer. But, you know, obviously we want to do that to Jack Bauer. So you find those other clever ways to drop hints about that character in somewhere, whether it's a text message or whether it's a billboard or whatever it happens to be. Or baby chickens. <laughs> yes, maybe <laughs> something like that. So with Michael from The Good Place, interestingly, this is all we get of him on the page. Michael, brackets, Ted Danson, emerges. That's his whole wow. description on uh, in the uh, the good place. Hold on, I got an Emmy for you, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> best writing, best writing. But so what I want to explain about that is that's probably because Ted Danson was already attached or cast when Mike Shore wrote the draft of this script. The one that we were looking at was the network draft in December of 2015. So that was probably pretty close to production. For those unfamiliar, the drafts typically go writer's draft, studio network draft, table read draft, production draft. Now, I don't know if there was an earlier draft somewhere where Mike Schur described his ideal version of Michael, or maybe he just wrote Ted Danson in as sort of like a stunt cast thing and then ended up actually casting him or what. But later on, there's a little more. They mention how the Good Place staff, I guess, dress. They say Wendy dressed similarly to Michael. They look like Four Seasons Hotel staff, which I guess didn't really end up the, the pilot itself, like the red blazers or whatever. But, you know, that's kind of all we get. So much of the character as we know them on the screen often comes down to the shared interpretation and negotiation between the writer, showrunner, the actor, the directing EP, and the wardrobe department, all that kind of thing. 
But again, this is a situation where Mike Schur has an overall deal with NBC Universal, and he doesn't really need to spell out every little detail in the scripts because he knows it's going to go into production and he'll figure it out then. If you are writing your own original pilot on spec, hoping to grab someone's attention and fall in love with the story and the characters and, and want to take it and turn it into something, it's usually better to give us a little more than just a name in your character description. Yeah, like Jake Brackett, Brad Pitt. I think uh, I'm going to sell that pilot today. <laughs> Excellent. Now, moving on to Scorpius, it should be noted that unlike the three other characters we've just spoken about, Scorpius was not intended as a series regular, but as a one-off character. In fact, he was so terrifying and the performance was so good that he soon became a main cast member. And to keep him in the show, they even built a major plotline around having a neuroclone of Scorpius put inside the main character's head, nicknamed Harvey, uh, which I will not talk about in this episode because we're talking about Scorpius, and Harvey is a different character, technically speaking. <laughs> um, now, Scorpius appears for the first time in the 19th episode of the first season, entitled Nerve. Or maybe it's 18th. It depends on a. It's pretty the late for system. what seems like a major character. Exactly. And that's, that's because this entire scene or entire episode is built around uh, the point where Crichton is taken as a prisoner and tortured to get that uh, wormhole technology information out of his head. And that is when we get introduced to Scorpius. And the introduction is as follows. Angle on the doorway as a new ominous figure appears. Scorpius. He's half Sebastian and half alien. His appearance is unsettling, but not because he's grotesque or ugly. On the contrary, he could easily be considered handsome in a dark, dangerous, predatory way. His uniform is unusual, more elegant yet more severe than those of other peacekeepers. This is no run-of-the-mill stormtrooper. He's Gestapo. Clearly a lot said in those few words. We'll go over the actual physicality of Scorpius in our next section, but I did want to bring up the fact that he actually does not interact with John Crichton until later in the episode. But his first interaction, you will hear yourself later on, but it's really already antagonistic where he essentially calls out uh, John Crichton and uh, blows up his spot by calling him out as an imposter on the ship. Now, we'll note that in this episode, his actions have permanent effect on Crichton. And this is something I've commended in the past period team episode, the fact that the lead is psychologically tortured by the villain and he remains permanently unstable from that point on for the rest of the series. And so again, within a few scenes, Scorpius makes his mark and the rest is history. We've talked about the characters' introductions and their initial presence, but what are some of the characters' specific traits in terms of their voice, their portrayal, as well as their appearance? So some of the little micro traits that make Lindsay from You're the Worst fascinating and unique character to me are firstly her voice. You know, it's so interesting. It's, it's a combination of like the dialogue as it's written on the page and the performance choices by Kether Donahue. So Lindsay kind of speaks like a baby or I guess more <laughs> like an adult talking to a baby. It's that kind of high pitched, sweet cooing tone and this childish misappropriation of words and concepts. Like even like we said before, an adult lady kind of sounds like how a child would describe being a grown woman. So I think that really makes her quite stand out. And, you know, when you hear Lindsay talking or when you read her dialogue, you just hear that voice in your head and it's it's so distinctive. Another thing that I, I really love about Lindsay is her point of view. Now, Lindsay comes from a fairly privileged, spoiled kind of family where she's always been looked after and she's never had to do anything for herself, including work or worry about money. And it seems like she aimed to continue that trend by marrying Paul, much like her sister Becca married Vernon. They were kind of marrying for the money, not for the love. 
and now she ends up kind of coming face to face with reality and then we get a lot of comedy from Lindsay having to do things that normal people do for the first time at the age of 30 something like get a job or figure out how to work electrical appliances in your kitchen you know a lot of the, her childishness and confusion about life comes from this sense of arrested development that she never really had to grow up and so she didn't and that is reflected in her behavior and her interactions with other people and characters in the world around her from a writing perspective i think this is a strong clear character choice that makes her stand out from all the other characters Lastly, the other thing I love about Lindsay as a character is her physicality. I think that everything she does down to the way that she eats and drinks is just a little bit odd and kind of baby-like or childlike. And this gets juxtaposed, especially in the pilot, with her attempts to look and act more like an adult. So as she's introduced in the pilot, driving a brand new Lexus, she's dressed really nice. She has this new realtor kind of haircut, but underneath it all, she's still the same selfish, immature person. And that kind of creates those contradictions and conflicts that make for great characters. Now onto something completely different <laughs> than uh, Lindsay. Uh, David Palmer is uh, played by Dennis Haysbert, who is simply amazing in the role, and he doesn't have a baby voice, uh, I'll have you know. Uh, and that's probably his best performance from my money. He kind of carries this character with a lot of dignity and pose, uh, all in this six foot four package. And a lot of things do happen to his character over the seasons, but the only physical toll we can track as viewers are what happened to his hand after the attempt on his life at the end of the second season. Uh, in short, it's kind of a scar that has served to remind us of what happened uh, that day. But other than that, there's not much else to discuss in terms of his overall appearance. I mean, he's the president, so... Uh, Wears a nice suit and a little suits. American flag lapel. Exactly, exactly. But uh, regarding the character's voice and tone, uh, a lot of fiction bases kind of portrayal of African-American leaders in fiction under the Martin Luther King model, but the reality of 24, I feel like, uh, makes so that David Palmer is closer to someone like JFK than MLK, and specifically relating to his practical political sense. Palmer is kind of a ruthless president. He's not afraid to leverage everything is built to pursue his ideals. And there are key moments where you do see that shining in his voice and presence. And in fact, Dennis Haysbert was nominated for a Golden Globe for his portrayal of David Palmer. Dennis Haysbert is great in all those kind of roles where he is like a leader and commanding a presence. I think he was in The Unit as well. Absolutely. Uh, David yeah. Mamet Martin, he was incredible in that too. Um, Side note, everybody should read the David Mamet memo. To oh the yeah, unit. it's really good. We'll put it in the show notes. All right, so moving back to comedy for a second, Michael from The Good Place, a couple of things that I really love about him are firstly his costume. And again, that wasn't written in the pilot script, at least the one that I saw, but it's obviously something that has been arrived at by the creative team. And so Michael is a very well-dressed, put-together, older gentleman who kind of gives off an air of uh, refinement and class. He's always wearing a bow tie and a suit jacket and a pocket square, which again is such a great juxtaposition with the kinds of ridiculous situations that he seems to find himself in. There's just something funnier about someone who looks like they should be at a fancy dinner party or in a boardroom, uh, instead wading knee-deep through shrimp and garbage. Uh, it kind of ties in with our expectations about these archetypes and these stock characters that audiences are familiar with in TV. In a way, he kind of resembles like a foppish, upper-class British dandy, the kind of person uh, who expects refinement and class and order to things, which is the opposite of what he gets in the show. And it provides a fun opportunity to switch out his clothing and reflect a change in the character or the mindset. For example, when he's 
going through his midlife crisis, he ends up wearing a white sport jacket. His shirt isn't tucked in and it's kind of unbuttoned and he's got this little uh, diamond earring stud or whatever in his ear. Or uh, he also puts on a gray hoodie and sweatpants when he's depressed that his neighborhood is falling apart. Uh, Another thing that I love about Michael, especially in season one, is his kind of outlook on life and his optimism. Michael, being sort of a good place angel or architect, only really seems to see the best in the world and, and the people around him. Even when everything is going wrong, he puts on a smile and hopes for the best and he sees the best in Eleanor and is like, oh, you would never do anything wrong. You're, you're such a good friend to me. And he's assured that everything will work out okay because everything here is fundamentally good. And that's what it's meant to be. But of course, this turns out to just be another way to make Eleanor feel worse about what she's seemingly doing to the world around them, uh, destroying Michael's neighborhood right under his nose while being his best friend to his face. He fairly quickly devolves into neuroticism and pathos, again, to basically to turn the knife more to Eleanor and the others that he's torturing and make them feel bad for him. And when his true nature is revealed later at the end of season one, Michael is actually a much more malicious and conniving person. But as we soon find out, he's also still kind of as neurotic and depressive as he seemed to be, even when his true colors are revealed. Now, if you want to look at a true villain and what a villain should look like, take a look at Scorpius, because uh, Scorpius's entire look, much like his character, demands is intimidating. He wears a head-to-toe black leather coolant suit. Gimp suit. And, uh, gimp suit. And if you're not familiar <laughs> with his costume, his BDSM costume, definitely check the show notes for this episode for a fancy photo. I feel like I'm selling his costume. Like, uh, <laughs> this is what it's it's Alex's new job is uh, selling gimp suits. Whoa. But Scorpius's weird physical appearance is actually tied to his kind of dual lineage. As mentioned, Scorpius is half Scarin, half Sebation. Sebations look almost humans, while Scarins are kind of reptilian by design. And Scarins thrive on heat, and create this massive amount within their bodies while sebations are especially reactive to high temperatures and suffer from heat delirium with it. And Scorpius dealt with that dilemma by using a complicated protective suit with cooling rods inserted into his brain that regulate his body temperature. And gradually those rods heat up, taking the warmth from his body and therefore must be replaced with fresh cooler ones. Now, Scorpius's demeanor is in direct contrast to his kind of sharp and angular exterior. Scorpius's voice is described in the script as, quote, smooth, measured, dispassionate, and not to be disobeyed. It's a very soft kind of cultured voice that he employs to address everyone else, while his face is scaly, pallid, and kind of unappealing. And Wayne Pigram plays brilliantly this juxtaposition, which only enhances the character and plays right into that gray area that Scorpius embodies, as we'll explore in our next section. So we've looked at the micro and what characters are like moment to moment, but what about on a larger scale? Let's talk about the kind of macro series arcs as well as the characters' goals and their wants and needs over season and over multiple seasons. So Scorpius is the main peacekeeper who attempts to track down the lead character John Crichton. And one of the reasons why he pursues Crichton is because Scorpius wants to dig into his brain and learn his ability to create wormholes. And that's because Scorpius believes if he has the ability to create a wormhole weapon, he can bring the Scarin Empire to its knees. And throughout the series, John and Scorpius have this push-pull relationship because of Scorpius's implant inside John's mind, the aforementioned Harvey. And Crichton wants to kill Scorpius, but cannot because of the chip in his head. Sadly, he cannot remove that chip himself without dying. And Farscape likes to lean into that BDSM imagery from time to time. Again, look at the villain's leather costume to give you an example of what that means. And these chains and all that kind of thing. Yeah, and uh, down the line, Crichton and Scorpius agree to a truce where Crichton will help him learn about wormholes. 
And because of his various actions, Scorpius becomes an outcast within the Peacekeepers and ultimately becomes an intermediary in the various wars that happen involving John Crichton and his crew with the Peacekeeper Empire. Now, Scorpius's goal is clear from the first time we meet him, as mentioned before, get the wormhole technology from John's mind. But what evolves during the show are what the audience knows about his motives. He is first established as this evil, ferocious adversary, and his flaws as a character and as a person are gradually revealed. We start to empathize for why he's doing what he's doing, uh, and this empathy is built, and Scorpius borderline becomes this sympathetic character by the end of the series. Now, Scorpius even tells Crichton that his earliest memory is pain. As viewers, we actually see and sympathize with Scorpius when we witness him as a boy being tortured and torn between two worlds. And the fact is, the internal arc of Scorpius is he wants to learn who he is, what his lineage is. And as he tries to determine who he truly is, Scorpius is constantly reminded of his biracial birth. There is even an exchange between Captain Mullane and Scorpius that goes like this. Scorpius, I was taught that I'm the product of a forced birthing between a peacekeeper male and a scaring female. I believe this to be false. I want to know the truth. Captain Mullane. Why? So you can find out who you are? Scorpius. To find out who I should be. Following that conversation, we do learn that Scorpius is the result of a scaring rape of a Sebastian woman, and Scorpius was tortured during his youth. The Scarens believe that would make him stronger as well as kill any Sebastian parts of his psyche. And installed within the Peacekeeper Command, the Scarens believe that Scorpius would help them conquer the Peacekeepers, when in reality, as I mentioned, Scorpius plans to destroy the Scarens. Now, Scorpius might do horrible things on a regular basis, but his actual goals are understandable. He has such a disgust for the Scarens that he is willing to do anything to ensure that their expansion into the rest of the galaxy is prevented. They're the true villains of the show, so his goal could be considered heroic, but his actions and lack of empathy for those he hurts overshadow any humanity inside him, and the ends does justify the means for Scorpius. But unlike our protagonist, he does not believe in some greater good, he's dressed in it for pure revenge for his very birth. So going back to Michael in The Good Place, we're led to believe that Michael's goal in the series is to design and run the perfect good place neighborhood, and the good place is basically heaven. And so he spends almost every episode tinkering with it, either trying new things and activities or else running damage control when things start to go wrong, seemingly on the account of Eleanor. Now, he is also, as we mentioned, a neurotic ball of stress, trying to keep everything from falling apart, which is a fun juxtaposition for this put-together character. And we get the impression that everything has always actually run smoothly in The Good Place, and there's literally never been a problem there before. So we have this otherworldly being who has never experienced failure or worry, suddenly having it forced upon him for the first time and having to deal with it kind of not computing. Uh, similar things happen with another character, Janet, later on, and these people are ostensibly something of a cross between angels and computers, so it's fun to see them not be able to process what's going on. However, as we come to understand in season two, Michael is actually far more complex than he seems. Again, spoiler alert, but it's revealed that Eleanor and everyone else is actually in the bad place, not the good place, and Michael is a demon who is trying to design the perfect torture to last for an eternity, and he's doing this by putting polar opposites of people in what seems to be heaven and then telling them that they are soulmates with each other and they're meant to be here even though they know that they're not, and then they watch them torture themselves over and over as 
their world falls apart around them and are forced to think it's all their fault and they also can't talk to anyone about it, otherwise they'll be kicked out. So that's kind of his plan for the ultimate torture in their version of hell. But as soon as that reversal and that reveal comes, so does another. Michael is at odds with the rest of the demons because this is his own little experimental version of this torture, and he's kind of taking a huge risk and could actually be killed permanently if it goes wrong. So as dissent grows in his ranks among the demons, uh, he now has to enlist the help of the people he's meant to be torturing to pretend like he's doing a great job of torturing them in exchange for not actually doing it and just pretending that they are, in effect, saving them both from what they fear the most. It's a fantastic setup for farce, and it manages to turn Michael's character from the sympathetic basket case to a sadistic hell demon, and then again into a sympathetic sadistic hell demon basket case. So despite his change in motivation and intention, he does fundamentally retain the elements of who he was before, just thrown into a new situation. And the latest turn of events in the show even has Michael trying to learn ethics and how to be a good person from Cheaty, like Eleanor did in season one, in the hopes that they can all make it out of the bad place somehow, which is what we always talk about, throwing those opposites and huge contrasts up against each other. You literally have a being that exists for the purpose of carrying out immoral evil for eternity than being forced to learn ethics in order to survive. That's instant conflict and instant comedy. Another one of the great things that really endears us to Michael, like Alex was saying about Scorpius, is just how much we feel for this guy. Whether he's an angel or a demon, he has this certain pathetic helplessness and puppy dogness to him that means you can't help but root for him and feel bad when things don't go his way. I think it's something about his age. I think Ted Danson's about 70. Kind of like, you know, your grandparents or the character in Up, we just sort of feel for older people naturally. I don't know whether it's what they've been through in their lives or maybe the fact that they don't have a lot of time left or as many options or prospects as younger people, but certainly Michael seems to be an underdog among the other architects and demons, and he's finally given a chance to prove himself, and now it's all going to hell because of Eleanor, one way or another. There is also, like I said, that huge threat and stakes of him being tortured and put to a permanent death by his superiors if he fails, so we want him to succeed and stick it to those other demons, preferably in alliance with Eleanor and the others so they all make it out of there alive. But for someone who has literally been plotting to torture our protagonists the whole time, he's surprisingly likable to the point of almost being more of an anti-hero than a villain. Now on to David Palmer, and Palmer as a character is a complex balancing act. As mentioned before, he is not totally based on the Martin Luther King model, which would be this religious, charismatic man who wears his ethics on his sleeve and is willing to die for his cause. Religion is not a part of David Palmer's character. However, he is a man with a strong moral compass, and he is a character who has had to pay season after season for his ethics as well. Now, if we take a look at each season arc for David Palmer, I mean, in season one, Jack Bauer is the one working to stop Palmer's assassination. So David Palmer's true arc is really about the main political scandals hitting his campaign. The press learns that Palmer's daughter had been raped seven years ago and that Palmer's son was accused of killing the rapist. That's the main arc of the first half of the season. And then for that, Sherry Palmer lies to her husband and tries to undermine his campaign, which causes David Palmer to realize that she is only using their marriage to further her political ambitions. And the season ends with him terminating their marriage. In the second season, President Palmer faces traitors in his own cabinet who attempt to remove him from power to advance their own agenda. There's a conspiracy to invoke the 25th Amendment to remove Palmer from office and appoint the vice president as acting president. And the events of the day once again lead to the firing of a close advisor to the president, and that's Mike Novick, who's the chief
chief of staff of David Palmer. And finally, in the third season, President Palmer faces scandals during his re-election campaign involving his girlfriend, whom he met through her job as his personal physician. And finally, he's forced to cover up a murder when his ex-wife, Sherry Palmer, greatly oversteps her bounds to cover for him. And as we can see, Palmer's external journey on the show is pretty straightforward. It's usually eliminating threats to his presidency. But his internal journey in each season is always about reconciling his own ideals with reality. I mean, you can dream about utopian solutions, but 24 is a harsh world with harsher people. So with Lindsay in You're the Worst, from episode one, even in her introduction, it says that her goal has ostensibly been to grow up and be an adult lady. But the issue is she's been doing this by surrounding herself by adult things and putting herself in adult situations without actually working on herself or her behavior in any real way. So she forces herself into this unhappy marriage with Paul because she thinks it's what she's meant to do, and but still hates the idea of spending their life together or having kids despite him wanting both of those things. And so she resists and resists. She cheats on Paul. She goes on a drug-fueled bender, resulting in Paul ultimately leaving her at the end of season one. Then in season two, after kind of flirting with Edgar and largely using him without any consideration for his feelings, she gets jealous of Paul moving on with a new woman and refuses to sign the divorce papers, even going so far as to heat up an old condom of his semen and try to impregnate herself with his kid to trap him. And, uh, <laughs> Laugh out loud, Cohen. I know, right? It's actually like a surprisingly dark moment. So she ultimately comes around and signs the divorce papers at the end of the season and delivers this to him, only to find out shortly after that that her little condom trick worked and she's pregnant with his child. As soon as Paul finds out, they reconcile, ending season two with them back together. Uh, I think speeding off in this little motorbike and she's in the sidecar, but we see her face and she looks horrified and regretting what she's just done. Then as we get into the top of season three, Paul has just doubled down, devoting his whole world and his whole life to Lindsay and their new family and this kid that they're about to have. He quits all of his hobbies that he does by himself and he's planned their life out for them way in advance down to like the meals they're going to eat for the next like three months, uh, which causes Lindsay to freak out and stab him with a kitchen knife, which is another like huge moment. And now she has to take care of him as he recovers. I think she said it was an accident. Meanwhile, she starts to take advantage of Paul's doormat nature, convincing him to let her sleep with other men in front of him. She ultimately gets an abortion of the baby without telling Paul and then plans to divorce him and even setting off to search for a job to be able to keep herself afloat after that due to the prenup that she has and a now vindictive Paul wanting her to have nothing after she kind of betrayed him. And then season four is really Lindsay's biggest transformation. She finds this stable job and fashion that she's good at and she moves up in and she really turns her life around. However, this does come with the bittersweet revelation from Paul that now she's on her own, she can no longer blame him for the bad things in her life, which again sets her off on this kind of personal journey of searching for someone else to blame. She tries to blame her sister and then her mother, all that kind of thing. So she's matured to an extent in, in a physical way and she kind of has her stuff together, but she still can't quite accept personal responsibility responsibility for her failings. It could be argued that You're the Worst is an ensemble comedy like Friends, but I think the emphasis of the A story usually rests on Jimmy and Gretchen and their relationship. However, as Alex mentioned earlier, in season four, Lindsay and Edgar are really given more time and more dramatic latitude so as not to just be this side comic relief, especially as Jimmy and Gretchen find themselves stagnating as people and repeating history and making the same mistakes over and over and never changing, while the people around them, these people who are meant to be sidekicks, genuinely manage to better themselves and become three-dimensional people and characters in their stead. <laughs> 
we've just discussed who our characters are across this season, so now let's shine your light on some of their key moments, those scenes or beats that truly reveal character. In fact, remember that characters have to grow from where they start to where they end up, and they are defined by what they choose to do along the way, the choices they make, the decisions they go through. So what are some of those moments for our characters? So for Lindsay, I did just mention both of these briefly, but the really two big moments that are so memorable to anyone who's watched it are firstly the moment where she does inject boiling hot semen that she's just put in the microwave into herself to try and get pregnant with Paul's kid. And she suddenly found herself on her own without anyone to look after her or to blame her problems on. And she sees Paul happy with another woman. And so her absolute childishness and immaturity as a character makes her resort to trying to trap him to be with her through pregnancy, you know, as well as this belief that she has that she would be a good mother. And perhaps that would make her an adult in a way and give her life some purpose and meaning. It's kind of (laughs) crazy. And when she finds out that it actually worked, she doesn't even want the fruit of the seeds that she's sown. You know, she cannot commit to a decision and follow it through without changing her mind, which is 100% Lindsay. Even or especially huge life-changing decisions that other people would not take lightly, she'll just do them on a whim and then want to back out the second it requires any work on her part. And that is a great example of one of those. And secondly, it's that moment where she stabs Paul with a kitchen knife. You know, it really reflects her inability to accept the bed she's made for herself and have a go at a life with Paul, despite literally going to the extreme of impregnating herself with his child to keep him in the previous season. You know, seeing her life planned out for her like that and the loss of the freedom that she's always had, she snaps and stabs him. And that's how far she will go to not have to do any work or be an adult or grow up, which is meant to be her goal. So even though your characters may have a clear goal like that, like wanting to grow up, it doesn't mean that they really want to do it or they're excited about doing it or that it's going to be easy for them. In fact, they should have a lot of obstacles thrown in their way. It really might be more about what they need rather than what they want. And it's okay for them to begrudgingly kick and scream all the way through to that goal. For my David Palmer moments, I wanted to highlight the two things I've been showcasing about his character. That is the gravitas and importance of his character uh, as a president, as well as David Palmer being forced to compromise on his ethics. And to start us off, here is a clip from a second season episode where his presidential cabinet is assembled and about to vote on invoking the 25th Amendment, which would remove David Palmer from office. You don't like one of my policy decisions. The 25th Amendment does not give you the right to reverse that policy under the pretense of saying I have a disability. Mr. President, I agree. What I intend to show is a pattern of erratic and irrational behavior on your part since the start of this crisis. Seen in that light, your refusal to authorize military action is simply another symptom of your disability. Listen to me, all of you. I know you're not in the same room with me, but you can see and hear me plainly enough. Take a good look. Do I seem scared? Am I breaking into a nervous sweat? Am I babbling at a loss for words? Is my voice shaking? Did any one of you look me in the eye and tell me I'm disabled? By the end of the second season, David Palmer successfully disassembles the conspiracy and regains power. Moving on to the third season, I do not have a clip, but there again, Palmer is confronted by his strong sense of ethic and personal responsibility. Palmer refuses to fire his brother Wayne for Wayne's affair with the wife of one of the president's major financial backers. Firing him would obviously help Palmer politically, but David values loyalty above anything else. And of course, Wayne is his brother. So Palmer thinks that he can keep the political damage at a minimum, but in fact, he quickly loses control of that situation. Uh, he ends up asking Sherry, his ex-wife, to solve that problem quietly. And once again, it escalates uh, the entire situation. And by the end of the season, David Palmer 
realizes he cannot run for a second term because of his ex-wife's actions, even though they're not his own. You can see here Palmer at its core. The bottom line is that David is a character who always makes the good and moral choice, even if it is the wrong choice for him as a human being. He made his own mistakes by trusting his ex-wife, but his solution to not seek re-election was the tragic end to his character as a series regular, especially given his status as the first black president on primetime television. To conclude my feelings about David Palmer, I did want to talk about his death, uh, which is a controversial moment at the beginning of the fifth season. And this is less about Palmer as an active character than something that happens to the character, but it is worth noting nonetheless that Haysbert initially did not want a character like Palmer assassinated. And in the 2006 interview, he said, quote, I think it was a mistake. It buys into the legacy of the country. Every charismatic, wonderful leader we've ever had, they've shot him, and we could have broken that legacy by letting David Palmer live on. And the interesting part is, as uh, Nick brought up earlier, 24 was prescient about the first African-American president being elected, but maybe also uh, his successor, because uh, in the show, Charles Logan, uh, the next president, started out as this Nixon slash W. Bush-esque character, kind of weak, wishy-washy, and a victim of his advisors. And by the end of the season, Logan is revealed as this real traitor who gets arrested in the final episode. So maybe that's going to happen to Obama's successor. Who knows? We'll see. <laughs> So going back to Michael in The Good Place, I feel that most of the defining character moments that can be singled out for Michael are memorable precisely because they are moments of difference and change from his usual character. And so a lot of them come actually in season two. The first one is the trolley problem. Now he's presented by Chidi with this classic ethical dilemma situation of the trolley problem. If you're unfamiliar with it, essentially a trolley car is speeding down a track towards five people who are going to be hit and killed. Now you are standing next to a lever that you can pull to make it change tracks where it will only hit and kill one person. However, that makes you directly responsible for that one person's death through your actions. But doesn't standing by and watching five people die when you could have done something and saved them also make you responsible for their death through inaction? So that's the problem, and when this was presented to Michael, instead of really attempting to answer it and reconcile the ethical decision with his own morality, he instead complicates it and expands on the problem by forcing Chidi and the others to literally go through it by using his powers as an architect, physically putting them on a trolley and seeing people splatter in front of them when they hit them if they can't make a choice or if they make the wrong choice or even the right choice. However, Chidi and Eleanor ultimately realize that Michael isn't actually doing this to learn by example or to try to be a better person. He's just gone back to his old ways of torturing them again. It's just an old habit he falls back into. So as much as Michael seems to have changed or want to change, he's still his old demonic self. And the other moment that I really love about Michael is his midlife crisis. And this is kind of when he realizes that his world is falling apart and everything is not going his way. And one of the things that Chidi teaches him about is his death and mortality. So it, it has this real kind of true character realization for Michael of what humans have always known, you know, the ephemeral nature of existence. He's an immortal being that's suddenly being confronted by his own mortality and has to reflect on what actually has meaning, which is basically nothing. And he kind of flips out and buys a sports car and wears diamond earrings and uh, does all the usual midlife crisis stuff which is a huge contrast to who he usually is as a character. Let's finish this episode with Scorpius. And I've already highlighted some of his personal moments in his quest to learn about his lineage. So I did want to point out the evolution of the Crichton-Scorpius relationship in four scenes that illustrate that power dynamic between the hero and the villain. First up is this really small encounter in the Nerve episode of the first season where Scorpius reveals to everyone 
everyone that Crichton is not who he says he is. That man, he is an imposter. Seize him. I'm not going to play the entire fight. That was literally the first interaction with Scorpius and Crichton. And as you can clearly hear, it's very antagonistic from the get-go. Now, the second scene is in Liars, Guns, and Money, which is the 19th episode of the second season. And that is the moment where Scorpius needs his cooling rod changed and tries to make John change it for him, forcing him to do that via the chip in John's head. <sighs> you cannot let me die. Sacrifice you. That's what you're telling me in my head. But I think I'll give it a shot. No, you send me. No. Now take one. Take it. No. Take it. Take it. Now inside the rod. Get it. Inside the rod. Insert the rod, Nick. Insert the rod. <laughs> then in the third season, we have the scene where Crichton accepts defeat and finally gives Scorpius his wormhole technology, or rather voices his acceptance. You want the wormhole technology? I want your implant out of my head. So finally the rift between us is not so great. You do what you gotta do. You win. As if there was ever any doubt. The reality is pretty different since, in actuality, Crichton as well as Moya uh, successfully escapes without giving away the technology. Which brings me to the final scene I wanted to showcase about Scorpius as a character and uh, his interaction with Crichton. And that, last but not least, is the final moment uh, about the wormhole story in the Peacekeeper War miniseries. The climactic moment where Crichton finally launches the wormhole weapon and gives it to Scorpius. And it's a complete power reversal and kind of uh, epitomizes that BDSM relationship we've been talking about this entire episode. Happy birthday. Now get out of my sight. 
What a lovely way to end this episode, isn't it? That was the cherry on top of our episode. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, that brings us to the end of our episode. So thank you for taking the time to tune in and listen. You can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 72. And in a couple of weeks, you'll be able to get a transcript for this case study episode at paperteam.co slash 72 transcript. We love reading your reviews. So please leave us some more. That would be really awesome. And it will help other people find our show and enjoy it as much as you do. Thanks again to our sponsor, the 2018 Tracking Board Launchpad Pilots Competition, which is open now. Paper Team listeners can use the code PAPERTEAM, all caps, all one word at the checkout to save $15 off their entry. And you can learn more about all of the Launchpad's current competitions and exclusive partners by visiting tblaunchpad.com. And as always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, Scorpius quotes, you can send them to ask at paperteam.co. And next week... Uh, we're going to be taking a look at TV script formatting. It's everything you wanted to know about what a script should look like, but we're afraid to ask. Trust us, it's actually interesting. Uh, you won't <laughs> be falling asleep at all. No, I think uh, it's, it's stuff that people need to hear, so we'll have fun with it. All right, see you then. See you next time.